providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Well, hello, everybody, and thanks again for joining us for another episode of FNF Unplugged. And really pleased today to be able to have Andy Walden with us. He is the host of Black Knight's monthly mortgage monitor program, which we'll talk a little bit more about here later in the program. Uh, I would urge everyone within the sound of my voice, and more importantly, within the sound of Andy's voice, to sign up to get the uh, mortgage monitor calendar events so that you're able to listen to them. And uh, they do follow them up also with uh, written materials. It is invaluable for everyone who is in the real estate industry. And I use that term in the broadest sense. So Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. You bet, thank you for having me here. And you know, a question we always uh, ask someone uh, who's joining us, probably when you were in first grade and your teacher said, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what do you want to do when you get older? And he said, well, I really, you know, I really want to be the director of market research over you know, at Black Knight, understand the mortgage industry. Uh, you know, how did you get into the industry and what drives you to it? You bet. And I've really took kind of an interesting path through the mortgage industry, as I think a lot of folks in the industry have. I, I really started out of college. I had a, a friend that was doing due diligence underwriting reviews for loans being <laughs> sold into mortgage-backed securities. And so I, I signed up with that team and I, I traveled around the country analyzing mortgages that were being kind of re-underwritten and evaluated being sold into the private label securities in the mid-2000s. And, and we all know the credit quality of mortgages that were being sold into the market at that time. And so it gave me a really unique perspective about the mortgage market and about kind of that type of collateral. And you could tell very, very early on some of the challenges that were, were headed our way just by looking at the collateral entering the market at that point in time and look at, looking at folks ca- literally cashing out Mercedes through HELOCs and through cash out refinances. And so that was really my entry point into the market. And then I really kind of went full circle around the great financial crisis. So when I, I went in and um, did some credit oversight, looked at mortgage-backed securities and cash flows of, of mortgage-backed securities uh, during kind of that 2006 to 2008 timeframe, led a repurchase review team as those loans were being kind of put back to the original lenders for those loans to be bought out. And then I actually made my way over into default mortgage servicing and worked in an REO shop as we were handling the kind of fallout there of, of uh, loans that had been foreclosed upon or borrowers that had walked away from those homes and handled the auction process and the property preservation process and all those different types of things. And so I really did get a, a very unique 360 view around the great financial crisis. And then over the last 10 years, I've been here at, at Black Knight and I've had the wonderful opportunity to work with all the different Black Knight data assets, which again, have phenomenal data around the great financial crisis, but really everything between then and, and now as well. So looking at what happened in the housing market in 2012 and 13 in the, in the recovery, looking at the post Dodd-Frank mortgage origination environment, mortgage performance environment, and then the phenomenal data assets that we have around forbearance data right now and looking at all the changing dynamics that have happened over the last two years. And, and as we all know, there've been a, a ton of those. And so that's really been my path through the market. And it's really kind of given me a unique perspective, not only of what's going on now, but kind of the historical context as well. Well, I think that's so important that you have that view from sort of both sides of it. When I was a young attorney uh, here in Cincinnati, and one of the older attorneys who represented savings and loan said that uh, when you're a real estate attorney uh, in the mortgage industry, and at that time it was SNLs who made the vast majority of loans uh, that weren't yep. government loans. But he said, uh, really, what, what you do is, he said, when things are good, you put people in houses. When things are lousy, you throw them out. 
Uh, <laughs> you know, that's obviously an overstatement and uh, nothing that anybody wants to see in regard to throwing people out of houses. But it is so critical. And, and what we saw uh, when uh, back when we were all equity junkies in the first decade in the United States. And, you know, right now we're seeing such volatility in, well, the economy generally. And rates have risen sharply over a very short period of time. What's driving that? You know, and how has the market reacted in regard to those uh, rate increases? And, and as we all know, there are a number of different facets that drive where interest rates move on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly, annual basis. And there obviously are a lot of geopolitical pieces going on right now as well. But by far, the, the biggest impact that we're seeing on the interest rate market right now is inflation, the Fed's response to inflation and, and projected future Fed moves as they work to kind of tame in these inflation levels. And, and that's really driving the market. We've heard a lot of conversation about balance sheet reduction. You're seeing the market react to that in recent days and weeks as well. And so that's, that's really the primary driver behind what we're seeing in the interest rate environment. It was expected coming into this year that we would see interest rate increases, but they've been much, much sharper and much, much quicker than I think anybody in the industry was expecting. Right? If we look at what we saw just in the month of March, we saw the largest single month increase in 30-year mortgage rates that we've seen in nearly 13 years. Over the first three months of this year, we've seen the sharpest increase in 30-year rates that we've seen in 27 years. So not unprecedented, but historically significant rises that we're seeing in 30-year rates. And it's, it's really impacting every aspect of housing finance from mortgage lending. If you look at refinance incentive out there, the number of refinance candidates has dropped from about 11 million entering this year down to about 1.6 million as, as we stand here today. So over an 85% drop in refinance incentive in a, in a three month span, a 50% drop in a single month here in March. And so that's changing the dynamics of, of the origination landscape. If you look at our optimal blue data, you've seen rate locks on rate term refis drop 80% year over year. And it's just not only changing volumes and impacting volumes, but it's changing the way that lenders are looking at the market. We're now looking at it much, much less from an interest rate perspective as we have the last couple of years. And now we're looking at it from an equity perspective, right? Cash out refis during that span are only down 10%, right? They're going to make up the majority of all refinance lending this year. And so we're looking at kind of this, this changing dynamic, not only from a rate perspective, but from a home price perspective as well. And it's really shifting the way that lenders are approaching the market, the way that they're approaching a number of different aspects of their business line as well. When you shift over and look at it from a capital markets perspective, it's impacting obviously prepay speeds and MSR valuations as well. We saw prepays hit a, a three-year low last month. And again, the dynamics around prepays and the modeling that goes into prepays is shifting here as we move into 2022. And that's not even to mention the impacts on home affordability in the housing market, which I know will we'll get into, but we've seen a, a drastic shift in home affordability over a very, very short period here in 2022. And now we're sitting here in the lowest level of home affordability that we've seen outside of that 2004 to 2007 window. And that's really not the company you want to be keeping. And so obviously it, it just reverberates across the, the mortgage and housing markets when you see rates move as quickly as they have over the last couple of months. There's so many things here, so many moving parts. And, and one thing, and I know that you know, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, using reliable data, uh, you know, we heard the comment from uh, one of the members of the Fed about what they're looking to do here in the short run. They're talking about perhaps, you know, as much as a half point increase, I guess, in May. And a lot of the people who look at the Fed and watch the Fed have uh, predicted, you know, a retraction 
in the Fed acquisition of mortgage-backed securities. And I know that, you know, getting into the weeds on that is very difficult as far as projecting what that does or what that doesn't do. But just sort of an overview, what, do, what does that sort of mean when there is that comment about that sort of a retraction of uh, uh, purchasing in uh, the MBS market by the Fed? I mean, if you look at their broader sentiment, their broader statements, it's, it's been strengthening their stance, right? It's been kind of leaning more towards sharper increases in short-term rates, stronger runoffs in their balance sheet, which all of those things equate to upward pressure on 30-year rates. And I think the last time we saw something similar was back in 2018, 2019, when the Fed ran off their balance sheet at roughly half the rate that they're suggesting they may later this year. And they were able to do that about for about two years, ran off about three quarters of a trillion dollars before they kind of reversed course and started to pick up some balance sheet as well. We're in a much heavier balance sheet position from a Fed perspective today than we were then. So it's going to be more challenging to run off that balance sheet. Clearly more impact on the mortgage market as they're holding MBS as well, with a focus on starting to remove some of that uh, MBS balance sheet volume. So when you kind of look at the broader sentiment of, of kind of the verbiage that we're hearing and the quantification that we're hearing from the Fed, it all suggests upward pressure, continued upward pressure on, on 30-year rates here as we move throughout the remainder of 2022. Well, yes. I mean, we're hearing so many, you know, changes in projections. And uh, you know, Lawrence Young, who's the economist for a National Association of Realtors, it mm -hmm. seems about every two weeks he is revising uh, what he <laughs> thinks the purchase business is going to be like here for uh, in regard to moving forward uh, into through 2022. I think he started at a four percent reduction, and now he's up somewhere to the eight to ten percent reduction. And again, from that's NAR's opinion and, and NAR's position on it. And you know, when we look at home prices, has there ever been this level or rate of appreciation that we've recently seen in regard to home prices? And how long can this go on? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the question that everyone is asking right now. And I mean, to your question of have we ever seen price growth to this level? I mean, the, the simple answer is no, right? And we could point to a number of different metrics that are coming out of the mortgage market right now. Uh, one is that we've somewhat become numb to, to the numbers coming out of the housing market over the last few months. But if we kind of wipe the last two years out of our mind, which I, I know a lot of people would love to do at this point, and we go back to our mindset and, and kind of what we knew heading into 2020, we had never seen anything at or above 13% home price growth. Even through 2005, 2006, the, the reheating of the housing market in 2012 and 2013, we had never seen 13% or above home price growth at any point in time. And we just recorded 19.6% in February. And we've re-accelerated the housing market and we're reheating in each of the last four months. We've seen 14 months throughout the pandemic where we've seen home prices rise by more than a single percent in, in a month alone. And we've seen four months over 2%. We'd never crossed that threshold at any point in time. And then you start to look at how hot it is across the country. And each of the 100 largest markets across the country are now seeing 10% annual home price growth. We'd never seen that before either. So in terms of are we in uncharted territory in terms of just the, the rate of home price growth? Absolutely, we are. The average home has increased in value by 34% since the onset of the pandemic, which is effectively the equivalent of eight to nine years worth of home price growth squeezed into a, a two-year span. And so we've just seen, I mean, you can go on and on with the numbers. We've seen astronomical levels of home price growth. Now, there's some good that comes along with that, especially for folks that are existing homeowners. They've been watching their property values rise. They've been watching their equity rise. We're at all-time highs in terms of equity growth and, and total equity accessible to homeowners. 
If you look at the leverage out there in the market and just total mortgage debt compared to the associated home values were below 45% for the first time ever. So we're as lightly leveraged in the housing market just because of that home price growth that we've ever been. And, and there are some positives that go along with that from a risk perspective, but to the question of, is this sustainable and how long can it go on? I mean, it's certainly not a sustainable level of, of home price appreciation, right? You, you tend to want to see your home price growth rate align with your income growth rate. And we haven't seen anywhere near 34% uh, income growth over the last few years. And so now we're at a point where if you start to triangulate cash flows for folks looking to buy homes and you, you kind of triangulate their, their incomes and, and where interest rates are and home prices, it now takes nearly 30%, right? If we look at where we were standing as of last week, it takes nearly 30% of your gross monthly income to make mortgage payments on the average price home. It was 19% a year and a half ago, right? The long-term average is 25%. So when you start to look at it and, and kind of triangulate prices with, with incomes and interest rates and look at the underlying fundamentals, it certainly suggests that prices are, are out in front of where we should be in terms of the underlying income and, and interest rate fundamentals. And I think that creates some challenges as, as we move forward. And to your point, I remember a, a presentation that was about, uh, I guess now 15 or 16 years ago, three realtors from different parts of the country, one from Orange County, one from the San Francisco Bay Area, and one from Cincinnati. And uh, the one real estate agent in Orange County said, well, you know, last year we had about a uh, 12% growth in home prices in Orange County. And again, this is back before the mortgage meltdown and, and the Great Recession. Uh, the person from the Bay Area said, yeah, we had about the same amount, 10 to 11%. And the person from Cincinnati said, well, we had a whopping year. We had a 3% appreciation. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, and, it's absolutely true. It's as, it's as true today as it was then, because if you look at price growth across the country, the, the Midwestern part of the country, right, Cincinnati, Nebraska, where, wherever you want to point to in the central part of the country, they're less reactive to falling interest rates and, and uh, loose affordability than the rest of the country. And so you see much sharper run up in those coastal markets almost unanimously in the, the Midwestern part of the country. But if you look at affordability compared to long term averages, 82% of markets now are less affordable than long term averages. And the, the minority are those chunks in the Midwestern part of the country. So absolutely. That story holds just as true today as it did 15 years ago, right? The, the Midwest, not only more affordable than coastal markets, but more affordable than their own long-term uh, benchmarks as well. And I know that, uh, I guess, was it, uh, uh, I guess it was the January mortgage monitor, you were talking about refinance and, and loan activity generally in the largest MSAs and how in California in December, before we saw these really rapid rates uh, increase uh, that we've just seen, that there was so much refinance, cash out refinance activity in the major markets in California. But then you looked at the major markets in Texas and there it was just the inverse is versus being 55 to 60% refinances, which is what the California market was showing for cash out refinances. It was that same 60 or even 70% that was purchased for those large Texas markets, uh, the DFW, Houston, areas like that, all real estate is local. So uh, yeah, that, yeah. that certainly uh, is is a circumstance. And and you know, markets like that. I mean, what do you think about some of these high price markets? I mean, you know, California is obviously one, but we see them uh, all along the coastlines and in the Midwest. You know, Chicago and areas like that. Do you see any sort of equilibrium that might come into play here? Because obviously, affordability is going to be an issue. Yeah. yeah, and every market, if you look historically, every market has their own equilibrium, right? California is less affordable than the Midwest, and that's always going to be the case. So you do have to look at each market individually and look at their own equilibrium in the housing market, because in, in California, you simply 
assign more of your your median household income to housing expenses than you'd need to in the Midwestern part of the country. And I don't think that's ever going to change. There's always going to be a differential, but I think it's important to look at those different markets in their own context. Right? And so we did that in our, our latest mortgage monitor report as well, as you mentioned, and, and you look at areas like Los Angeles, where it takes a quarter more of your income to allocate towards housing expenses than it did from kind of the mid nineties to the mid two thousands. And even when you put those markets in context with themselves, knowing that they're less affordable than the mid from part of the country, they're still significantly unaffordable compared to their own historic averages. And so I think as we move forward, you mentioned real estate's local. It's always been the case. That always will be the case. I think it's going to be very, very noticeable as we move throughout 2022 and into 2023 that you're going to see some localized movement in housing markets. And I think you're going to see various degrees of, of, of impact of what we're seeing right now in, in housing markets across the country. What does this mean for the average home buyer, you know, heading into spring? I mean, this is especially in, you know, Florida has a little different seasonal uh, uh, high points uh, than most of the rest of the country as far as when the highest activity tends to be. But by and large, the second quarter, spring, generally from March to the 4th of July, is really the hot time for uh, home buying. And we've talked about, and you've talked about, you know, the affordability issues. Now, what does this all mean for that average home buyer heading into the spring? And I mean, you're absolutely right. It's, it's really kind of starts to run up in February, but March through July are those key months for the housing market. We're already accelerating running into those timeframes. And it's really going to be a, a challenging market. It, it has been for the last 18 months for home buyers out there. I don't see it improving here in the near term. It's going to be a very challenging market for home buyers out there for a number of different reasons. If you just look at buying power and, and what the rise in interest rates that we've seen so far this year has done to buying power, buying power is down 15% from where you were at the same time entering this year, right? So over the last three months, your, your buying power has gone down about 15%. Again, if we kind of look at the monthly cash flow situation and the payments that you're having to put out just to buy the average price home, they're up 24% year to date. And they're up 54% from where we were two years ago. And so you're really starting to see homeowners get stretched out there, not only because of this record level of home price growth, but again, that record level of home price growth now coming right alongside the, the sharpest rate increases we've seen over the last 27 years as well, right? So affordability, extremely tight, right? Buying power down for those buyers. And at the same time, they're out competing for fewer and fewer homes in the market. We've seen the, the, the inventory levels continue to fall down. They're now down kind of at the same deficits we were seeing in mid 2021. And that's why we're seeing that housing market heat up. So there's not a whole lot of good news coming prospective home buyers way. They're looking at record levels of home price growth. They're looking at their affordability and buying power of road. They're looking at record levels of price growth. And they're kind of standing there looking and wondering, well, where do I go from here? Do I still try to jump in here? There's not a whole lot of good news coming my way. It doesn't look like it's going to ease up here over the next couple of months. In fact, it could get potentially worse. And then they're really in a difficult spot here as you get into that traditional heat in, in, in the largest number of home buyers coming off the bench to, to go out there and, and shop and compete for housing. Well, and new construction, uh, you know, we've seen some of the numbers uh, sound optimistic as far as new uh, uh, home starts. But I know that I was with some uh, large uh, builder uh, representatives uh, just last week at the RESPRO meeting uh, in Las Vegas. And they were saying that, uh, well, yes, we are busy, but where we our average contract ran somewhere between six to nine months to get the house built, now we're saying a year. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so they have a whole raft of issues that I'd uh, say that you've discussed, uh, I know, on the mortgage monitor 
um, that that plagued them in regard to just getting those houses to market? Uh, you know, and, and what are you seeing in regard to you know new construction? Uh, again, you know, it's out there, but it's not going to give us much relief. It sounds like in the in the short run. It's not. And really, there are I, I kind of look at four different components here that are all heading the wrong direction. Right. We you just mentioned new construction and the challenges that they're facing from supply constraints and, and otherwise. But new construction typically makes up ballpark 15 percent of home sales. So it's an important piece, but it's kind of a subcategory to overall existing home sales. But you're right. There's challenges that we're facing in terms of new construction and headwinds there. If you look at existing home sellers listing their homes for sale. We've been running at a deficit since the pandemic began, right? So we've, we've had this new construction deficit that's been building for a decade plus ever since the great financial crisis. We've never really rebounded to the levels that we should be in terms of new construction. Now it's being compounded by existing homeowners not listing their home for sale during the pandemic and the deficits that created. And now if you look at what happens when interest rate increases, that creates some headwinds for inventory as well, because now homeowners are saying, well, I just refinanced into a two and a half, three percent interest rate. Why would I list my home for sale and sell if I'm going to have to go out there and, and take a one and a half to two percent higher interest rate to do it? Right. And so there's this quote unquote rate lock phenomenon that, that will be holding back inventory levels to some degree as well. You typically have the distress market that funnels in a, a few percent uh, of overall home sale volumes. We've had foreclosure moratoriums and forbearance plans and those types of things in place, which have been extremely important to get homeowners back on track. But it's also limited inflow of inventory out there in the market. And then when you look at potential default in forbearance failure activity that I think a lot of folks were looking at as a potential source of, of inflow of home sale volume, that simply hasn't uh, manifested itself to any meaningful degree either. And so when you kind of look across where inventory potentially could come from, there's not a whole lot of answers right now in terms of, uh, of when inventory starts to rebound and, and to any significant degree that it'll do so. I'm so happy to hear you talk about, you know, people staying in their houses because they've got such a low interest rate. Because, you know, anecdotally, uh, I have seen that literally for 40 years. Yeah, I used to refer to it as interest rate exhaustion, uh, that you go through a period of time where we have low rates, historically low rates. And I say when I started, 16.5% was the first loan I closed. It was a VA loan and the seller had to pay four points to get that. But when we dropped to 13%, there was a flurry of uh, refinance activity. Yep. And, you know, and that being said, people get those ideal rates. And while they might move up in another uh, circumstance, they're like, boy, I'm really loving, in the case of my son, a two and seven eighths rate in yep. regard to his mortgage. He's like, yeah, I really would like to buy a, a bigger house, but I'm being quoted, quoted four and a half and it seems to be rising. Yep. And we looked at that. I mean, we, we obviously were in a different but somewhat similar environment back in 2018, 19, when rates shot up and were near 5% for a little bit. And at that point in time, we matched our, our McDash mortgage performance data to our MLS data just to look at the rate at which homes were being listed on the market. And there was a very clear distinction among folks that had locked in fixed rates that the lower your rate was, the lower your likelihood was to have your home listed for sale. So there's certainly some specific number evidence there that, that that type of rate lock activity does take place out there in the market. Also too, obviously, and you mentioned forbearance earlier, and we're, we're pretty much coming out of forbearance as far as those uh, mortgages that went into forbearance. In the mortgage monitor, you, you've you know spoken so well and you've laid out how so many of those mortgages, that even though they were in forbearance, people continue to make the payments or they refinanced uh, to uh, retire those loans. What is that effect, not just of forbearance, but you know, where we are in the marketplace in terms of uh, delinquency and therefore default 
And does that give us any wiggle room if houses are coming back on the market in regard to default? Are those default rates in any way meaningful to help that uh, the tightness of that uh, housing market? Sure. And if you look at mortgage performance, there's really two distinct stories going on, right? If you look at the overall headline rate for national delinquencies, it's pretty darn close to, to pre-pandemic levels. We're just a hair above. I would suspect by the time we get through March, we'll be back down to pre-pandemic levels in terms of overall delinquency rates. The difference, though, is that early stage delinquencies, there are 25% fewer borrowers that are one or two payments behind on their mortgage. So we've seen this overcorrection in early stage delinquencies. We still have twice the number, roughly, of serious delinquencies out there than we had before the pandemic. So there is still some potential risk out there. The the difference is that we're really seeing that risk elongated and mitigated to some degree by the, that forbearance activity, right? So if you look at performance post-forbearance and the, the share of borrowers that have exited forbearance plans, 90% of folks that have been in forbearance have left at some point, still have about three quarters of a million folks active in forbearance. The category, when we start to look at potential risk of those borrowers leaving forbearance, there are about 400,000 loans that are still in post-forbearance loss mitigation. And, and the majority of those have been sitting out there for three or four months as they work through processes with their servicers. So there still is some opportunity. There still is some risk out there. It's just moving very, very slowly for a number of different reasons. We had a, a massive wave of that exit uh, volume take place in the fourth quarter of last year. And servicers were inundated with working with all of those borrowers at the same time. And so it's taking a little bit longer to work with them. There are still half programs out there, right? There were $9.4 billion that were allocated to assist those borrowers that servicers are trying to work through those with all of the different state agencies as well. And so it's been a little bit slower movement than I think what a lot of folks were expecting to see. And we really haven't seen any of those volumes break free in terms of, of default or potential foreclosure activity, but there is still some bet- potential risk out there um, in the market that's, that's still being worked through. That being said, when we start to put that in context of, of potential inventory out there in the housing market, it, it just doesn't simply look like enough to be a, a big needle mover, right? We're a half to three quarters of a million homes short listed for sale right now. Um, so when you start to put that into context with the, the half a million loans that are still delinquent or inactive loss mitigation, even assuming all of those loans flowed through it, it wouldn't right side the, the, the housing market. And there's no expectation that all of those would flow through. So, I mean, it certainly could be a needle mover. There certainly is potentially still some risk in terms of distress out there and, and default in the mortgage market, um, but, but not enough to, to right side or flip the housing market from what I'm seeing. Well, Andy, I really want to thank you today. I think it is so critical for everybody in and say the real estate industry. And when I say that, whether you're in realty, whether you're in lending, whether you're in title and settlement, as most of our listeners are, or for that matter, we have a lot of listeners who are FinCEN entities. We have regular listeners in Europe. Now, I sometimes wonder who those people are and gee, they must have time on their hands in Europe if they're interested in in talking about this. But, But what you're talking about is of interest internationally. Um, it's not just uh, an issue here in the United States. It is an issue in Europe. It is an issue in India, uh, where they do a lot of uh, uh, back office servicing and work uh, within the real estate industry. So, you know, I uh, well, I just can't say enough for you know what your presentations are on a mo- monthly basis. And and for that matter, could you give our listeners a little information if they would like to sign up for you the bet. regular monthly mortgage monitor and how to do that? Absolutely. And I think the easiest way to sign up would be to to just simply Google Black Knight Mortgage Monitor. And you can pull up our most recent month along with historical months and kind of thumb through all of our data and and analysis and commentary. There is also a link on the right side of that page that you can put in your contact information and we will send you out 
uh, notifications when new reports are uploaded. And we can even invite you to our monthly calls where we discuss for about an hour every month what's going on in the mortgage and, and finance and housing markets. And you'll also see a link there for our origination market monitor where we pull in our optimal blue rate lock data and really dig into the latest and greatest on what's going on in lending trends in, in real time before those loans even close. So a lot of useful information out there that you can access online and would love to have you join us for our monthly calls as well. Forewarned is forearmed. And uh, everybody needs to know what this market, because it is such a volatile market, it is facing, or we are all facing so many challenges in regard to it. So uh, yeah, I can't say enough about uh, the Mortgage Monitor series. And I'll add too, for any listeners, uh, there is the opportunity to ask questions on that Mortgage Monitor series. So uh, if you have a question uh, for Andy when he's done his presentation, uh, he's more than happy to answer it. But again, thank you so much for joining us here today. And I uh, hope to have you back here sometime soon. And uh, hopefully we'll, it, at that time, time, we'll see things maybe a little more stabilized. So uh, it may not be as exciting a podcast, but it, may, it will be just as meaningful, I'm sure. <laughs> you bet. I would love to come back. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Andy. And thanks to everyone for listening here today. And uh, have a great day. And uh, again, thanks so much for joining us here at uh, FNF Unplugged. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.